the afternoon with a, uh, a time for some questions. There's many of you were here this morning and um, for the earlier part of the day. And uh, so before we launch into another period of formal, med- formal meditation, please uh, feel free to ask uh, any Dhamma questions that you have. Anything that either came up from from the things this morning and what we were saying or uh, the little ceremony that we had, the circumambulation and so on. Or, or whatever, so please, the field is open. Almost guaranteed to make the mind go quiet. <laughs> yes, Irene, yeah. Well, I've never really lived in one of those uh, huge monasteries. I visited uh, in uh, in India. I visited uh, Sarah Jay and Sarah May monasteries down in uh, southern India, and uh, it was I was there about a month after the tsunami, and so they were doing pujas every evening, and all of the the monastic community would gather together at uh, Sarah Jay Monastery, and there was about six thousand monks and nuns and novices all chanting together. So uh, that was a pretty extraordinary experience. Um, what I understand is, uh, I, mean, I don't really have direct knowledge of living in one of those places, but I think they, they, they divide the places up into small villages within the monastery. So like in a town of, say, 5,000 people, you'd have different um, sections of town and they're, they're and in the monastery, you have different sections that are administered and and have their own sort of independent lives. Um, so I think that the biggest monasteries I've ever lived in maybe had a population of 50 or 60 monastics, and uh, not much more than that. Um, but, you know, people are pretty much the same everywhere. <laughs> you know, there's some things that, that uh, um, are... Uh, independent of circumstances. So whether you're living in a little hermitage in the forest or you're living with with 3,000 other people, um, there's still the, the uh, necessity of, of uh, finding ways of working it out between you, even if it's just between you and one other person. You, know, you might think, you're, if you're living in a place with 3,000 others, like, God, oh, this is so oppressive, I've got to get out of here. Well, I guarantee, I, I know directly that People in a monastery of two <laughs> have had the ex- identical experience. Like, God, this is so oppressive. I've got to get out of here. <laughs> or if only this other character wasn't here, then everything would be fine. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I mean. It, things are this pretty, the same everywhere. So you always have to solve it in in here. And that's whether you're in the forest or you're in the town or whether you're in the, a big group or a small group. Or even if you're in a cave by yourself. You might be thinking, I wish that, that guy wasn't here. You know? If only I wasn't here, this would be a really great retreat. <laughs> this would be the perfect solitary retreat. 
Unfortunately, that's not really a joke. <laughs> but uh, but um, so it's always a, a question of of um, seeing where uh, where you're creating problems you know, and looking to see where where that is, and then what is it that's causing the problems, the, the friction or difficulty or alienation or whatever, and then using your your faculties of, of wisdom and understanding to to see what you can do to, to let go of that. The original Abhayagiri monastery in Sri Lanka had about 5,000 monks and I think about uh, 1,000 nuns living there. And it's a whole complex. And different, they had different sort of sub-monasteries within it. But it was... Uh, when uh, Fahian visited there, the Chinese pilgrim visited there in the 4th century. Um, uh, in his records, he said there was about 5,000 monastics there. So, the current Abhayagiri in Mendocino County is a lot, <laughs> a lot smaller. Any other questions people have? Well, it's, uh, because life is mysterious. <laughs> um, well, the uh, <coughs> one of the, the aspects of chanting in in Pali is that chanting has has both a, a purpose of devotional uh, a, a, a devotional aspect. A purpose of arousing devotion and respect. Um, it has a purpose of helping us to recollect certain teachings or qualities. But also, the other another aspect of it is it's a, there's a unifying quality. So that when you're you're chanting, say Buddhang Saranangachami or uh, these these words which have been recited for centuries, millennia. Um, or Namotasa, you know, ever since the time of the Buddha, that those words have been used and countless, really uncountable times. So, when you are reciting those words, you are joining together with a whole current of of faith and devotion that's been going for for all that time. Now, you might think that's that's slightly magical thinking or extremely magical thinking, <laughs> and. Uh, and the, the rational mind might say, well, pah. But something in us does recognize that. That there's a joining into a, 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 a group or a current of, of faith and, and devotion, a current of commitment and association. You're, you're, you're stepping into that stream. You're, you're joining that, that, that current of faith. And even if the rational mind is saying, well, I, didn't, you know, I don't even know what these words mean, something on an intuitive level says, oh, 
oh, what's this? Like myself, like a, a, I can guarantee when I went to Wat Bapong that night in, in, back in 1978, my mind was sort of lurching around and chattering about this and that. And, but uh, you know, underneath that, the, the chattering mind making its comments and, and such like, there's, there's an intuitive sense that's functioning and it was that that said, oh, this is something really special. So, um, sometimes when we uh, repeat those, wor- those kind, of, kind of words, and I'm not saying that there's sort of an intrinsic power just in the, in the syllables themselves, but just the, the strength of association is, is functioning on, a, on an intuitive and, and very basic level. And that uh, something, can, something relates to that. Um, and I remember, I think it was Howie... Cohn talking about when he was on a, um, a, medita- a meditation retreat with Upandita, how there was some meditation instructions and the, the teacher said, okay, before you, you begin the sitting or when you want to enter jhana in this particular way, you, know, set, you set the intention by repeating these words. And it was a Pali sentence. And how he, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, he said he didn't even really know what the words meant. And his skeptical mind was saying, oh, well, I don't, know why, I don't know why we have to do this, but you know, I suppose I should. <laughs> and then he found that by, by uh, when he, when he uh, voiced those words of like, it's now my intention to enter jhana through the development of loving kindness or whatever it was, then bang, it just sort of, somehow his mind clicked right in. And his rational mind was going, what? That can't work. <laughs> But he was realizing, well, it just did. <laughs> and, and so his, so the thinking mind is like, well, that's ridiculous. I don't even understand what each of the words means. But somehow, it, it has a, uh, knowing the intention that the teacher had and knowing the, the basic meaning of the, uh, the, or the, the, the uh, overall meaning of the words, just uh, using that, that formula to, to bring the mind into alignment then just had that very, very tangible effect. And, and you should ask him to tell you the, the exact story, because I'm, I'm not remembering it precisely, but it was along those lines, how he was startled, how the, the effect that that could have. Obviously that's not always the case. But um, I find for myself, when, when I chant in English, my mind goes more to the meaning. And when I chant in Pali, the mind moves more towards the faith aspect, even though I know most of what the Pali means. And it's quite surprising how um, the uh, many people, you know, American rationalists or British rationalists too, actually prefer chanting in Pali when you don't know the meaning. <laughs> is that? Yeah, I see heads nodding, <laughs> which is because. Uh, the the quality of faith and devotion is more being roused by that uh, that expression, and it's not because chanting is not just about meaning. That, that's only one piece of it. It's not just being able to remember those ideas, but it's in a way feeding that quality of, of alignment and expressing, uh, embodying that quality of alignment with the tradition and uh, and our ancestors. You know, the, all of those countless people who've gone before us, who've sat in halls in Bihar and Andhra Pradesh and, and Mongolia and in, in La- Latvia and Hokkaido and 
Sri Lanka and everywhere who have uh, sat in these places and have repeated Namo Buddhaya, Namo Dhammaya, Namo Sangaya, Buddhang Saranangajami, Namo Tassa and so on. But uh, we're, we're, <coughs> we're joining in with that same that same uh, sea of of, uh, of commitment and uh, connection with the, the tradition. So it's like um, it's a mysterious way that it works, but it does uh, it does seem to, to function in that in that fashion, and uh, it can circumvent the rational mind altogether. Like you say, you just somehow you start chanting those particular words, and then oh, <laughs> it, it can have its effect sort of. Uh, despite the rational mind, rather than because of it. Then, if that's the helpful explanation. Yes. Um, being aware of your going from Vaidhiri uh, to Avati, and just uh, knowing that in all of our lives we have times when we can make major changes, and I'm wondering if you're going through any attachment or fear of the unknown. <laughs> 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 Oh, good question. Um, well, this uh, the move was a bit of a surprise to me. I, I had um, I had the the idea that in the far off distant future, you know, ha ha ha, <laughs> 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 that when uh, some un, undetermined date far off in the future, over the horizon, when Ajahn Sumedho became decrepit or you know, his faculties had sort of fallen apart. The, when he's somewhere in his mid nineties, <laughs> you know, way, way, way off, then uh, I thought, well, it's probably it's probable that I would be invited to go to Amravati um, because the the list of people who might have the useful um, characteristics that would be able to enable you to to do that job is very short. It's, it's not a very long list. And so I could see that my name would be very likely to be somewhere up on that. And so I, I had that, that maybe one day that would happen, but it certainly caught me wrong-footed. You know, I didn't expect it to come. Uh, so there was no real mental preparation at all. Um, and uh, it's only really when I, uh, after the... Um, I was I was invited to to take up that role in December, and then I came back. I was in Thailand, and then came back at the end of January, and then we discussed it with the community at the Baigiri. They they hadn't amazingly they had not heard, and the rumours had not got through. Which is, if you want the evidence of the miraculous, <laughs> the fact that the rumour the rumour mill did not reach a Baigiri in. in uh, in over six weeks is pretty incredible, and there's some very accomplished news hounds at Avayagiri. <laughs> but uh, amazingly enough, they didn't know the, they hadn't heard. So, I, but we needed to discuss it with the community there. And so then, after that discussion had happened, then after the winter retreat finished, at the end of March, it was only then when uh, I then started to sort of step out into the the world outside the monastery and do other teaching events and word had sort of had spread around it was only then that it started to to sink in like oh this is something that's actually happening There's, there was a reality began to, to seep into it 
So since then, what I've, I've found I've been experiencing is not so much fear of the unknown, um, or fear of the, <laughs> the fear of the suspected, <laughs> fear of the anticipated, but more sort of um, it's mixed feelings. I'm very I'm very happy to be able to support my teacher and and uh, beloved mentor. You know, Ajahn Sumedho's. I mean, I really owe pretty much everything of my spiritual training to him. I've spent very little time with Ajahn Chah. I mean, he's a very great sort of figurehead and, and inspiring person, but I didn't, I was not close to him in Thailand uh, in those years, those few years I was there. But Ajahn Sumedho, I was elbow to elbow with him for about 13 years in Britain. So very much my, my sort of spiritual training came directly from him. So I'm extremely happy and honored to be able to take things up to, to give him the space where he can step out and say, bye-bye, <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> and he is extremely happy, at the, 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 the prospect. I was told by a, a friend of ours who was, who was there in Thailand, when I made the call from Abayagiri and told him that the community had said yes, there was some, Edward Lewis was there with him in, 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 uh, in Thailand and he said, Ajahn Sumedho said, Ajahn Amaru said, yes! <laughs> and he's not that demonstrative a fellow, you know. <laughs> so uh, I'm very happy on that score. But then on the, the, uh, the mixed feelings is that also, I have a pretty nice life at Abayagiri. You know, it's, it's pretty much the ideal forest monastery. And, um, and just the, the closeness I have to the people there and then having brought the whole thing in, into being with the, the community here in, in Northern California from when I, I first arrived in 1990, there was really w- uh, one little group in San Francisco that was the students of Ajahn Sumato and a few people who were regular attendees of his retreat, but it was really very, very small. And then seeing that, seeing the kid grow up, <laughs> get born and grow up, and the, and I guess it's a it's a sort of parental du- dukkha, you know, the the kids grow up and leave home. <laughs> you know that uh, probably some of you, even with little ones, are having anticipatory dukkha, like when when Nora goes off to college, you know, the week after next. <laughs> there you go. See, so that sense of well, I guess even though I talk about you know using these teachings about this is a broken cup and you have to see that things. The perfection is in something's impermanence. You, know, you expostulate on that kind of thing all the time, and suddenly you realize, oh, this was impermanent too. So the way I felt it is more like sort of small waves of poignancy. That kind of, oh. And, he, and, it, and it's kind of, it is really interesting how, even though you're discoursing about you know, you should recognize that today might be your, your last day, or this hour might be your last hour, this, this these, this minute might be your last minute. And I don't know how many times I've waxed lyrically about that. Yeah. Even, even on a day long when somebody died, somebody died during a day long of mine. She passed away, had, she had Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, she died during the day long. And, and, the, and even that, um, you know, it was quite a shock and, and uh, a powerful teaching. But it's really interesting how it's different. 
when it's got your name on it. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I found this, and it's odd little moments. It's where, just going down the freeway thinking, I remember the first time I saw the blue skies and the golden grass and the turkey vultures wheeling and saying, what are those birds? And the green, the dark green oaks. I remember when this was, and that sort of, I remember when, just that wave of of poignancy just washing through and then, and a feeling of, okay, well, how many more times will I be going down the freeway and looking at the, the turkey vultures in the blue sky and, and um, so that that's really that that sort of um, not in a ter- being in terms of being upset, but just a, a certainly a a a, a grieflet. You know, <laughs> just that oh, I'm going to be saying goodbye to this, or just looking through the the glass doors uh, 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 from inside the hall of the Bayagiri, You look into the the green hillside rising up on the other side of the valley. So it's this wall of green. And sitting there, looking at the trees, thinking, oh, that, just, that won't be there very much longer. I'm going to be saying goodbye to this. So that that, uh, that mixture of feelings uh, is really what I've been experiencing. And just and my effort has been to hold it as that, just that, with no commentary about it. Just, well, here, here's the feeling of mixed feelings. There's the, the the bittersweet quality of yes, this is this is lovely and good and and yes, goodbye. Rather, I'm sure it's the same with your, your kids growing up and leaving home, going off to college and doing their thing. It's like yes, I'm really happy they're going off to college. <laughs> and, you know, and your kids are really happy. Like hooray, I'm out of here. <laughs> and they're thinking the thing, hooray, I'm out of here. Oh, bye, mom. You know, and it's you, that's the human flavor, really. That's the the flavor of the human world is is that mixture of of bitter and sweet together, and just to be able to hold it in that way. This is the, this is the flavor of the the human realm. It's like this, like the, many of the, the haikus that people were writing about uh, Ajahn Sumedha's teachings. You know, it's like this. It's one of his favorite catchphrases. Uh, it's this way, and the. Uh, Going into the unknown, you know, the, especially a, 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 it's a, uh, for those of you who don't know, Amravati is a, it's the main uh, teaching center. It's the largest monastery in of our community, but it's the largest monastery, Buddhist monastery in Europe. It's, it's a big place. It has a resident community of fifty or sixty people. It has an independent retreat center within the monastery. Um, uh, there's on an average weekend, you get a couple of hundred, maybe 300 visitors dropping in. Uh, if there's a retreat on, that's another 50 people. So you've got you know, uh, a, a lot going on there. Um, it's a very multi-layered uh, place. And over the last two or three years, there's been a lot of stresses and tensions within the community. It's, it's not an easy situation. It's one of the, also one of the reasons why I've been invited there. <laughs> you know, we we always are ready to thank our teachers for the challenging situations that they <laughs> they put us into. So I'm sure you've been very grateful to Mary Grace over the years, for the challenges she's presented, and <laughs> that uh, that the um, 
it's not an easy situation to step into. And so when you are walking into something that has got challenge written on it, then it's very easy for the thinking mind to say, well, I want to do this and I don't want to do that and I want it to go this way or I don't want it to go that way. I'm definitely going to do this and I really, oh dear, what if so-and-so is still around and then if? and You know, there's... And so I've made a point of, of just not following any of that when that those kind of thoughts have arisen. Because the more charged something is, the, 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 in a way, the bigger the event, the more that that stirs up the, that conceptual proliferation. And so I've tried to be really aware of that and, and not buy into it, to not, not feed it. So it's, it, it hasn't been that strong, but when it, a wave of that will arise, then just to, to make a point of leaving it alone, not adding to it, and just being resolute and, well, just, yeah, if you have, uh, if you've developed any wisdom or mindfulness, you'll know what to do when you get there. And really, clearly not trying to come with a fixed agenda. Uh, because that's fatal. I mean, any of, anybody who's ever stepped into a job or a, a, a family or a university role or anything that, where you've got, you, you really know what you want to do with this, this, <laughs> this new position. You know. And you just forget that you're involved with other people who are already there. You know, the whole momentum of, of conditioning and traditions and systems that you might have seen on paper, but you haven't actually lived in it. It's fatal. You just, it's like putting your head in the meat grinder. It's, like, it's messy and painful. So that's what I've found, a, a really imp- a, a conscious restraint of trying to plan anything out other than um, an intention just to be present for people, really. And um, to not... F- to, to understand people's projections. So a friend of mine um, who just was in England uh, last week as well said she was chatting with Christina Feldman who lives at, she's one of the Dharma teachers at Gaia House and she said does Ajahn Amaro realize quite the extent of projection <laughs> that's being uh, being uh, directed at him in terms of what people are hoping for does he does he realize the, uh, what the expectation level is and uh, Mary said um, I think he probably does <laughs> So I know that that's, that's in the air, but uh, I also, knowing that, it it's also increases that determination. Okay, well, if people want to project, may they be happy. That's, that's, that's their business. But just because other people have expectations or, or create their own projections of, oh, when Ajahn Amaro comes, it's all going to be fine. We're all going to live happily ever after. Yeah, which is ridiculous. But you can hope is a, is a non-rational thing. Um, but just to, to recognize that that's natural for people to have those hopes or expectations, but to see that that's, that's their issue. And I don't have to pick, pick up their expectations in their own terms. And if I did, it would be more obstructive. So just to, again, to, to know that that's there, but also not to be feeling like I have to be swept along by it. So in terms of, of ordinary life situations or, or how that translates into other people's lives, I think it, it's very comparable in many situations. Probably a, um, a smaller scale on average, but some of you maybe, you know, same sort of thing or larger scale. 
and that sense of trusting your own capacities. If you know your subject, you don't have to, to have every detail figured out before you step into it. And having faith in your own ability to adapt to a situation and uh, and also to be ready to fail because you know success and failure are are very uh, um, subjective qualities in some respect and just to be to be open to things not going in a way that you would like and just not not panicking on that account when when I was on my way here I, I uh, went to two graduation ceremonies on Friday I've never been to an American graduation ceremony. They don't have, I've never been to any graduation ceremony. They don't have them in England. You don't graduate from high school, you just get to the end of term and go home. <laughs> <laughs> but I was asked to give a talk at the, one, the graduation ceremony at the City of 10,000 Buddhist School. And one of the other speakers there was, was talking about, uh, he was giving a little sort of rousing uh, Exhortation to the, the the graduates, and he was talking about Michael Jordan, and uh, which I guess is a very it's a very common subject of graduation speeches. <laughs> I got that feeling of it. But one of the things he was he was I'm sure there's a, a few very very familiar themes. Yeah. But uh, anyway, one of the things he was saying was about Michael Jordan when he was he was asked about how he had been so successful was because he never let failure dominate his his um, uh, the fear of failure dominate his his way of acting he, and he went through this long list he said you know I've had I've been given the uh, uh, on 96 occasions I was given the ball for the winning shot and I missed <laughs> uh, yeah the uh, and yeah I've lost like 950 games and you know, this whole list of things that Michael Jordan had failed at and that uh, it was what was interesting was that he never let success or failure dominate his value system, and that's why one of the reasons why well, that's what he attributed his success to was that he was not obsessing on succeeding or failing, and so that I think is that is helpful advice in any dimension is we we so easily create unconscious frameworks of this equals good and this is success and that's an absolute right. <laughs> And this is a failure and it's bad and it's an absolute wrong. But we don't realize how flexible that is and how, as I often say, something that maybe we celebrated 10, 15 years ago and went, great, fantastic, I got the job, I got the appointment, you know, at last we're married. And then 10, 15 years later, like, oh, gee. Yeah, that's the worst job I ever had. What was I thinking of? You know, that was a disaster. And, and so... What was the success? You know, you just shift the perspective and it changes. So that stepping back from that judgment system is uh, is really important. And then trusting in mindfulness and wisdom, so that when you're you're stepping into a new situation or you're receiving, you know, fear or expectation, to be going into your own heart to, to draw on your own intuitive wisdom. Okay, what's really happening here? What will be for the best? And then what, what might arise is, I don't have a clue. Or, and, <clears throat> and if that's the case, uh, rather than 
filling that up with, well, I better bluff. You know? <laughs> I better pretend I know what's going on. You, you find that you're much more able to recognize, I really have no clue how to work this. And then recognizing that limitation, you're able to, to um, not feel like you have to fake it or, or just run away. But like, aha, uh-huh, this is really interesting. I have no idea what's going on here. Right. And so then you find yourself looking closer and feeling things out and trying to find a place where you understand it. So you're, you're guiding your actions from an attunement rather than just a, a plan or out of um, trying to perform or look good or f- uh, fulfill other people's expectations. So, so a few themes on that score. Okay, maybe one or two more questions and then we'll have our first sitting for the afternoon. If there's anything, to, anything else to ask? Yes? Um, from a beginner standpoint, which is the only standpoint I can take at this point now, um, of, the, of the doubt that wants to creep in when you're first learning karma and sitting and hearing the teachings mm-hmm. and all of the voices that want to rise up and have an opinion. Mm-hmm. And on occasion I'll hear that Well, I think you just described it, really. It's the uh, learning to, or just reminding yourself that just because you think it doesn't mean it's true. Like in the Charlie Brown Peanuts cartoons, the adults always just say, gat, 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 gat. Right. And just to to remember that what's going on in your thinking process is is pretty much on that, if you hold it on that level, it's like, well, just because this is rattling through my mind, why should I pay any attention to it? Why should it be meaningful? Why should I get upset or excited about it? It's just gag, 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 gag. And um, so, and you, you just, in a way, it's you, you described exactly that that uh, perspective. So, um, um, and just clarifying that for yourself. Oh, this is the doubting mind. And if it's in terms of exactly what kind of meditation you, you should be doing or shouldn't be doing, then just to recognize that there is, there is no... The, the, the myth of the right thing is really insidious. Because we search for this, the right thing that I should be doing. And we spend huge amounts of money and time trying to find that. But I would suggest that there is no one right thing. Uh, and that it's far more helpful to, to look for a good enough thing. But even this might not be the right meditation practice, at least for the next half hour, let's just do this, because it's, it's probably good enough. <laughs> and our, our, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to stress that a lot. So that when, when people would say, how are you? He, he wouldn't say, oh, I'm fine. He'd say, good enough. <laughs> Deep or D. That, uh, good enough. You know, 
And so, is this the perfect meditation practice? Well, it's good enough. Yeah. Is this the perfect building for a, for a meditation center? It's good enough. You know, is this the perfect body to be walking around in? It's good enough. You know. So, that way, uh, it might seem like a shallow compromise, but uh, if, you, if you look at it uh, from a practical point of view, it's... Um, it's much more realistic and therefore and therefore helpful. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'd suggest. just leave it to, I'm leaving all of that to the community at Abhayagiri to work out things that other people will do and things that will just be left by the way others can fill in there's, a, there's much more in the way of resources now you know we have uh, at Abhayagiri there's 13 or 14 monks there's the, nun, the new nuns monastery in San Francisco so they're, a, they're available for many things as well so um, as also, we don't have to hold things in the shape they have been forever. They can change. You know? But, uh, you know, that sense of, oh, this is great while it lasted, and now it's finished. <laughs> but that, that's a, uh, there's a, a, a perfection in that transiency. Even though there's a, there's a feeling of loss that's there, it's also, uh, there's a perfection in that. And sometimes, it, you know, even though you know you, di- you discourse on that, sometimes you're surprised on that. <laughs> there is that feeling of loss, but it, it is, in a, in essence, that's what makes it perfect. Of seeing that, well, this is it's a part of it was always part of a cycle. No pun intended about the bicycle pilgrimage. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know that the, the fact that was last year was my last bicycle pilgrimage is. Well, that uh, that leaving things behind is a is a um, it's part of the flavor of of Dhamma. Okay, so maybe if people like to you know, stretch your legs for a minute, and then we'll have our first sitting. Mm-hmm.